Welcome to Kurosawa Worth Watching, where we're watching a Kurosawa film and then the films that it inspired. We're starting out with the 1950 film that changed everything and became part of the culture, Rashomon. Last week, we did an introduction to Kurosawa with author Peter Tasker, and we highly recommend checking that out if you haven't already. Mm -hmm. And his book, too. It's a nice book. Yeah, on Kurosawa. And I'm your host, and I'm recording this podcast from beyond the grave, trying to let the people know what a monster my co-host is. <laughs> if they don't know by now. <laughs> <laughs> and my co-host is Guy, who claims he blacked out while recording this episode and doesn't know how he woke up in a pool of my blood. Well, this, this really shouldn't be the first episode I've blacked out during. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So uh, I'm recommending the maximum penalty, nothing personal. But. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about this film. It's based on two short stories, and it changed everything, both for Kurosawa, but also for Japanese film and directors. Before this film, nobody, paid, nobody in the West or outside of Japan paid any attention to Japanese films. They were considered to be an immature industry, not worth looking at. That was unfair because the reality is they had some really good stuff, you know, both things Kurosawa had done and at the time the most famous Japanese director, Ozu. And there was a lot of good work there, but they were just being ignored. Kurosawa had done a bunch of films before this. We talked about them in that introduction that were really good, but they, you know, if it had, as I mentioned there, if he had stopped at that point, he just would have been a historically interesting Japanese director, right? He wouldn't have been Kurosawa. Mm. Um, and it's with Rashomon that he really breaks out. And what happened was they were deciding what Japanese film to submit to various competitions around the world, right, to get noticed. The general feeling was it really should be an Ozu film because Ozu was a true Japanese director. And Kurosawa with Rashomon had done something that wasn't really a traditional Japanese film and didn't really represent Japan. And so it really should be an Ozu film. But somehow he squeaked through. And they put out Rashomon to these festivals, and it became, a, at least in critical terms and everything, it became a huge hit. Like, it really got noticed. It put Japan on the map. It put Kurosawa on the map. And everything changed after that. And and that was, what, 1951, was yeah, it? Yeah, well, the film was 50s, in 50, and 52. I think, you know, yeah, it was being released and going out around that time, 50, 51. So that's interesting to me that, it's only, say, around seven years after World War II. Mm. You know, if, uh, mm. you know, 45, middle, middle of 45 would have been the end of World War II. So there were still, among the American public, well, I can say this because in my lifetime, there are still Americans who, um, you know, hold a grudge about World War II. <laughs> um, but, but just less than a decade after the end of the war, um, that would have been, uh, could have been a kind of a hurdle to get it uh, popularized in the U.S. Now you're right. I hadn't thought about that, and I'm sure that contributed totally. Uh, and just probably just basic racism. You know, these guys, you know, <laughs> don't know what they're mm -hmm. doing, et cetera. And uh, this stars Toshiro Mifune, who also became a huge star. And he had been in one previous Kurosawa film, actually a great film called Drunken Angel. It's not on our list right now, but maybe we can <laughs> squeeze it in somewhere. Who knows? And he ended up doing a total of 16 films with Kurosawa where they were sort of seen as a team, kind of here, sort of like Scorsese and De Niro, right? You know, they did all these films together. 
But they had a rocky relationship, and Mifune complained that Kurosawa never complimented him. And and then uh, later on, you know, much later, uh, Kurosawa did a film late in his career called Red Beard, and he was being very, very perfectionist about it, and, and Mifune was the star, and he had this big red beard. Well, it took two years to film, and he wouldn't allow Mifune to shave off the beard during that time, and that kept yeah. Mifune from being able to get other jobs while he was working on this, and he was out of money. He was running like a acting school, and he was not a good businessman, and you know he was always running out of money. And so he and Kurosawa fell out after that and would insult each other and, and you know, really had to. Hmm. And, and in fact, uh, they never really reconciled. And after Mufune died, Kurosawa did a nice note for his funeral. But I think while he was alive, they didn't reconcile. So it was unfortunate. Hmm. Kurosawa really kind of started Mufune's career because he saw him and insisted that the production company hire him to you know basically be a stock actor in their in their crew and the reason he did was because Mifune had and you definitely see it in this film this ability to switch emotions very quickly and to really project his emotions and he was sort of just unique especially of course in a Japanese culture where you sort of repress yourself and and all that mm -hmm. right he was sort of unique in being able to do this and as soon as Kurosawa saw that he knew he wanted to work with him hmm. and of course the concept of this film just had a huge impact on culture, right? And in fact, it was officially called the Rashomon effect, <laughs> where people tell their own versions of a story. And uh, there's many movies, you know, which we'll be watching in TV shows, and we'll watch at least one of those that have used the concept. And as I say, there's practically no TV show that at some point doesn't do this story. <laughs> you know, it's just a natural. Uh, it's like the bottle episode. That's yeah. just something you do. <laughs> and in addition to that story concept, Really, it was this groundbreaking cinematography as well as use of the environment. We'll talk about that as we go through, but in particular, Kurosawa, this is all takes place outdoors, and he wanted to light it with natural sunlight. But as they found, they just couldn't get enough light by just using sunlight uh, for the cameras. And what they ended up doing was using mirrors, you know, to reflect additional sunlight onto people and you you'll kind of see mm. how that impacts the look of the film if you're if, especially if you know about it as it goes through you can actually kind of see where the mirrors are kind of reflecting on the person's face and such mm. he also is the first person to point the camera at the sun and i think they had to do some things to keep from damaging the camera as part of that yeah i wonder uh, i wonder if that would have been like damage to the film or just if it if it was something they, uh, like if it would render the film unusable, if it was overexposed or yeah, something. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I should have looked into it more, and it's just something I recall reading a while back. The other thing here is there is a huge amount of rain during this, and, you oh, know, boy. that all had to be artificial, but they couldn't get the rain to show up on the camera. So what they ended up having to do is put a bunch of ink, <laughs> black ink, into the water to oh. get it to show up. And when you watch uh -huh. this, one of the, you know, I'm always thinking about how do you put these things together, et cetera. You realize there is so much rain that they must have had these massive water tanks. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, it's pretty interesting how much, what they went to to make this work. Yeah, that was something I actually wondered about while I was watching it. Did they just wait for a rainy day? But that, <laughs> that wouldn't have worked because the way it rains in this movie, uh, you get that maybe three or four times a year. You know, right. So. Right. <laughs> But it's a, it's they did a remarkable job with it. Yeah, and the other thing is that 
Kurosawa really wanted to bring back the qualities of a silent film. So this is a sound film, but he felt that sound really complicates things. And he really, really wanted this to be as simple as possible, a movie and a story. So he did everything he could to cut out any complexity. And so while there's sound in it, he tried to treat it as a silent film. Hey, anything else you want to mention before we head in here? I mean, we practically spent half the uh, length of the film just uh, setting it up. <laughs> it's also a short uh, film, which uh, I appreciate. Uh, this is a 90-minute film, and I'm on – I don't remember if I've ever talked about it on the podcast, but I I believe that most things should be 90 minutes, you know, plays, movies, <laughs> et cetera, that that's the perfect time for a story and that you should only go longer than that if you have a good reason. Now, when we get to Seven Samurai, that's an over three-hour film, so we will see, uh-huh. we'll see if it's worth, uh, worth the time. Okay, with that, let's head into Rashomon. So we start out with a shot that's very reminiscent of Citizen Kane, which came out in the decade prior. So I I suspect that it's intentional, which is, you know, it's this shot of this decorated wooden sign in the rain that says Rashomon in Japanese. And it's kind of like that gate shot in Citizen Kane. And I looked up this, and Rashomon, I didn't know this before, uh, it was a term used in ancient Japanese cities for a gate, and it was the southern gate to the city. And there are multiple ancient Japanese cities that would have had a Rashomon gate. Hmm. So during the credits, we're getting different shots of this gate area with a huge amount of rain. (laughs) And it's really heavy here, as we say, throughout the movie. There's no real year indicated, but, I mean, what we can see watching it is, I mean, there is a samurai. All we know is it's pre-modern, right? We don't, we don't know mm. particularly what it is because we really see – there's, there's only three sets in the entire film, and we really see very little of the world. And it, it might be worth mentioning that the gate that we see, uh, it's seen better days. It's, it's, oh, a, yeah. half, it's half uh, collapsed, you know, it's, it's – I read uh, that it, it was the actual historical gate was demolished, partially demolished by a storm. So you've got this uh, this imposing structure. You know, it's like a multi-level structure with all the Japanese ornamentation and so on. But yeah, and big thick logs and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really big structure, um, and half of it just looks like it's been blown away. Yeah, and it's totally, everything is almost everything's outside. The people there, as we'll see, end up they can shelter from the rain, but it's you know they're a few inches from the rain. It's not like they're indoors or anything, right? But also, from what we see, we don't. It's not like connected to a city or anything. So it probably is an ancient gate where the city used to be there, and it's not really now or something. You know, hmm. it's not really a gate anymore. It's really just kind of a like the. <laughs> Like the gate to a fence just standing there with no actual fence around it, you know? Yeah. So we see two men sitting inside this, you know, gate area where it's dry and they're waiting out the rain. One of them is pretty obviously a priest, just kind of how he looks, and then he'll get called out as that later. And the other one uh, will come to learn as a woodcutter. And I don't know if his dress would indicate that, but, you know, the things he talks about and does as we go along makes it clear that he's a, that he's someone who... Cuts wood and, I guess, brings it in. Mm-hmm. And a stranger approaches out of the rain, kind of wading through these pools of water, and joins them. And the woodcutter is kind of sitting there rocking back and forth, talking about he, he doesn't understand. And the stranger asks him what he's talking about. And it turns out the priest also knows 
what's going on. There's this weird story they've been exposed to. And both he and the woodcutter saw and heard the events of the story. And it involves a man who was murdered. So dun dun. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like this. It also might be an indicator of, you know, the time it takes place in. A stranger who who basically is a commoner, you know, and he is completely unimpressed. Like one guy was murdered, and you think that's a big deal? And he points out that if they go into the top of this gate, they'd probably find half a dozen dead bodies that no one had bothered to follow up on, you know. And <laughs> the priest agrees with him, but he still says this is a particularly horrible story. So much so that it's causing him to lose his faith in humanity. I don't know. I mean, we'll see as we go along. I think maybe the priest, uh, you, you know, <laughs> puts a bit too much on this particular story, you know, meaning all of humanity is is lost, but we'll see. <laughs> Even during the course of the movie, there are, well, at least one other thing comes to mind that just discourages the priest even more. So he's, uh, he's sort of been primed for this uh, mm-hmm. uh, loss of faith. But maybe maybe it doesn't end up so bad for him. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, so the commoner wants to hear the story, and he just starts breaking off parts of the, the gate, you know, little wood slats around and so that he can start a fire, which is also seems a little bit blasphemous, like he just comes to this place and starts breaking it apart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the woodcutter asks him to listen to the three people's stories of what happened so that maybe the commoner can help the woodcutter understand what they've experienced. So the woodcutter begins his version of this story, which also serves as essentially a framing device for the rest of the movie. And he talks about how he went into the mountains to get wood, and we then cut to a forest, and immediately, now we don't have the rain, and and we're immediately exposed to this cinematography I was talking about where, you know, we're looking up through the trees at the sun, and where we're seeing this really bright sunlight coming through these leaves and everything, and and as the woodcutter is walking along, you know, he's walking through these bits of light and shadow and it's, it's pretty dramatic in how it's done. And also he's moving along quickly and it's a really fast moving camera. And we're going to see this multiple times and it must've been very hard for them to do because they were out in the forest and you're having to track along with someone who's like running and go very fast and keep the camera on them. And these were big, heavy cameras at the time. It's really pretty impressive how, how they were able to do that. They must have had to, like, cut down some trees and create a track and all that. I don't imagine they had much in the way of handheld cameras then. Mm -mm. So we follow the woodcutter, and oh, also, as we're doing so, we start getting the music, you know, the theme we're going to hear over and over in the movie. And it's a version of Bolero, but it's kind of a more subdued one, right? Um, if, If you're familiar with the the Bolero song, it kind of ramps up and gets louder and louder. And this is always a little bit more quiet, maybe a little bit more slow usually than that. Um, and pretty subtle, but it's, but it's what they use through most of the film. Wasn't Bolero what was used in the movie 10 for a sex scene? Probably. I, uh, not sure. <laughs> I think I saw that when I was when I was like 10 or something, but I don't remember. <laughs> so, or I may have just seen all the uh, ads and everything cause, and interviews because it was such a big deal back then. Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually seen it, but I've, I've heard about it, and I'm pretty sure that Bolero plays in there <laughs> somehow. 
So he actually spends a pretty good amount of time walking through the forest. And one of the reasons they did this in an actual forest and not a budget, and one of the reasons they only have three sets in the whole film, was they had a very low budget. So in addition to Kurosawa thematically wanting everything simple, they just had to cut costs in every way they could. And as he's walking along through the forest, he comes across a hat and veil that were caught on a tree branch. And he's kind of not sure what that's about. And he walks along, clearly kind of curious, wondering if someone's around. And then he finds something which he says later, but I had to look up. It's a samurai cap. Um, we just, you know, it just looks like a bit of cloth or something, but it's, it's the cap of mm. a samurai. Then he finds some rope that's been cut up. He's not sure what that's all about, you know, little thin pieces of rope. And then he finds, again, something he describes later, right to look up. It's an amulet. And he's walking towards the amulet. And as he's doing so, he's shocked to come across a dead body, you know, laying nearby in the trees. And we, we don't see the body. What we see are two arms sticking up like in rigor mortis and kind of in a really, con- the hands are very contorted. And he runs screaming, and this is where we get a really fast tracking shot, you know, that must have been difficult to do because he runs really fast. And then we watch him, you know, we're going along with him through the forest. And he says he was called to court to testify three days later. The court is is one of the three sets, and it's going to come back many times. And it's interesting for several reasons. One, it's outside. But we never see the judge or jurors or whoever is there. We only see the people who are testifying, and they are kneeling on dirt, and there's a little wall behind them. It's actually like uh, these tiny white pebbles that they're kneeling on. Mm. It's uh, not quite sand, but not quite gravel. It's somewhere in between. Yeah, and originally my first thought was, okay, there's a couple clever things here in terms of the budget, right? By not showing the judges and the court and whatever was there, that's a whole thing they didn't have to have sort of set, right? I mean, this is a remarkably Mm -hmm. simple set, a little bit of a wall in the background, and that's it. And they also didn't have to have the actors, and they didn't have (laughs) to cut between them, which would have complicated things. Then I also realized that one way that they really use this to their advantage is that as the people are testifying – To the judges or jury or whatever it is, they are basically looking straight at us, the viewer. So we are the court. You know, we have to decide who's telling the truth. (laughs) And I don't know which came first, you know, cutting the budget or that idea. But I and I didn't realize it until having, you know, watched this in the past and watched it a couple times now. But I finally kind of saw, oh, yeah, that's what's happening here. It it occurs to me that the court is really kind of a red herring because it's kind of a foregone conclusion that uh, the bandit's going to get executed and nobody else is going to have to do anything. (laughs) Although we never actually are told, you know, what the verdict is or anything, right? So you just kind of have to assume. Yeah, the bandit seems pretty sure he's in for it, though. (laughs) So for now, we only see the woodcutter sitting there on his knees and we don't hear the voices of whoever's questioning him. So they don't even, what they do is they have him repeat what he's been asked. (laughs) That's how we know Mm -hmm. what he's answering. I thought that was clever. And he says he was the first to find the body and he didn't see a sword or any kind of weapon, but he describes what he did find the hat and the rope and such. And then we get this horizontal wipe. And I'm always curious actually in, you know, actual physical film, how they did these kind of wipes. I need to look it up because it must've been, you know, they didn't have CGI. They didn't. They had to do something physical to do them. I have no idea what they did. And also, mm-hmm. very much, you know, a reminder of Star Wars where they did those kind of wipes, right? And I'm sure this oh, is one yeah. of the influences on that. 
And now the priest is testifying and the woodcutter is sitting in the background near the wall. And the priest says he met the murdered man three days ago on the road. And we see what happened as he describes it. And he crosses paths with a woman in that hat that we saw earlier, the hat and veil. She's on a white horse being led by a samurai armed with a sword and a bow. And that's all the priest knows. Then there's another wipe. And now the woodcutter and the priest are both sitting in the background and two men are in the foreground. One of them is bound with ropes, and the bound man is Tajimuru, an infamous bandit, who the other guy there captured. He, it seems like he was hunting him from what we hear later, so he seems to be kind of a bounty hunter kind of guy, but they never you know, explicitly say that. Hmm. And the bandit is played by Toshiro Mifune. And, you know, see kind of what uh, Kurosawa liked about him, because, man, he is a you know, quixotic guy or like he just switches between emotions and, and he has this bizarre laugh. <laughs> it's really, Oh yeah. He can, uh, he can become manic at the, uh, the drop of a hat. It's yep. uh, interesting performance. <laughs> and so the bounty hunter guy is telling the court how he captured the bandit and we see it, you know, and he's, Walking along his shore, he finds Tajimaro writhing on the ground. And at first, it, he has all these arrows. And at first, it looked to me like he had been hit with arrows, but that's not the case. It's just, you know, they were like under his arm or something. Mm-hmm. But he's really in agony, you know, writhing around on the ground. And there's a, the white horse is nearby. And, you know, he has the sword and the bow and the arrows that belong to the samurai. And so that's what the bounty hunter knows. And so then the bandit decides to tell his story. So in terms of the movie, basically everything up to now has been the preface to kind of give you the context. And now is where we start into the, the real different stories. And we get the first official story from the bandit, who is very offended at the idea that he fell from his horse. And he explains that's not at all what happened. And mm-hmm. so he starts his story. And this is one of the things, that's, it's really helpful to watch this movie more than once because, you know, I appreciated it definitely more the second time I was watching through it and having read about it uh, through it a bit, honestly, because this is not a story that makes things obvious, right? I mean, you need to pay attention mm-hmm. and it helps if you maybe read a little bit and got some hints. And, I, you know, I'm not saying people should have to read a book in order to watch a movie, but just that this is a movie that rewards kind of watching it again and paying attention. I did think uh, after after watching it, I had enough questions that I actually went and I read some about, you know, some analyses of the plot and so forth, because it's not an easily accessible movie the first time around. Mm -hmm. So the bandit story starts and we have this, you know, long shot and it's an epic skyline and there are god rays coming through the clouds and the bandit is heroically riding his horse across the screen. And (laughs) so we'll see, maybe... Maybe, you know, his description here uh, indicates he might not be the most reliable narrator. (laughs) (laughs) And he says he then got thirsty and went to a stream to drink. (laughs) This is a really weird thing to me to be in a movie, especially like in 1950. He says there must have been a poisonous snake upstream because after drinking, he got this stomach ache. And as he was riding along, it was getting worse and worse. And he had to rush to the shore in order to, you know, uh, <laughs> handle that. <laughs> so and he do was his business. Yeah, he was squatting <laughs> down nearby. And that's why he was writhing on the ground when the guy found him. It was really just a case of bad diarrhea. He hadn't he hadn't <laughs> fallen off the horse. Now I don't know that the bad diarrhea thing makes him look better, but okay, he seems to feel it does. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it doesn't impugn his horsemanship. That's mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're a bandit, you got to be a good horseman. <laughs> but now, you know, he says he knows the court's going to have his neck eventually, so he's going to come clean and tell them what really happened. And he admits right up front he's the one who killed the samurai. He says he saw them on the road three days ago, and you know, we then, as as he's telling the story, we see it, and he was leaning against a tree sleeping. And they're kind of walking by, and, you know, the samurai is very leery of him and ready to defend himself if necessary. And what we see is this woman in the Hatton Veil on a white horse. And it's a very striking image, right? Because essentially she's this very virginal-looking person with this this beautiful flowing veil and her white horse. and And he says that at that moment, some wind came up and blew aside her veil. And if that wind hadn't come up, he never would have killed the samurai. Because when he kind of sees the, you know, the woman's face, he, he sort of immediately needs to have her. You know, it's, it's funny. That, that makes perfect sense. Although I, I was trying to figure out how the wind played in, and I thought it was just that it blew in his face and kept him from going to sleep. So he opened his eyes instead and watched him pass. But I, I didn't make the connection to the veil thing, though, and I'm sure that's what the actual reason was. But, huh. Yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, so, you know, they go on, and he's sort of trying to go back to sleep, but he's clearly just can't get her out of his mind. And <laughs> there's this a very... And at this time, there was a lot of, you know, censorship in Japan, and I forget... Maybe the American censorship had ended by now. There was a period where, you know, the Americans were censoring Japanese stuff, which really pissed off Kurosawa because they would take the stupidest things out of his films. <laughs> but here, if you notice, as he's laying there thinking about her, he's sort of slowly dragging his sword up his leg, and it kind of looks, you know, suggestive of <laughs> what's going on. Yeah. So he tells the court that she was a goddess, and he decided he had to capture her, even if that required killing her man, because, you know, that's what you do. <laughs> Though he claims he preferred to do it without killing the man, if possible. I guess that's honorable of him. Yeah. So he runs over the top of a hill to kind of, you know, intercept them, and he catches them on the other side, and he pretends to walk past, and then he suddenly draws his sword. And, you know, the samurai is ready to defend himself, but rather than attacking, he shows the sword to the samurai and says it's part of a stash of swords and mirrors that he found and buried in some nearby runes, and he's willing to sell them cheap to the samurai. And he hands over the sword, which, you know, seems to prove his honesty, right? He, he's disarming mm-hmm. himself and letting the samurai see it. So the samurai follows him up the mountain while his wife remains behind in her hat and veil. But the samurai is still cautious, and at some point, when the bandit pulls out his sword, the you know samurai immediately pulls out his and is ready to defend himself. But it turns out the bandit is just trying to cut a path through the forest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good trick, you know. He's sort of desensitizing the samurai to seeing mm-hmm. the sword drawn. <laughs> so they reach the supposed location of the stash in this clearing, and the bandit sends a samurai ahead of him into the clearing. And it, this does seem, you know, for someone who was being pretty trying to be pretty smart about all this, he's kind of dumb here, you know. <laughs> Uh, Mm. you know so of course it's a trap (laughs) and the samurai tackles him and they begin grappling and wrestling and we get another wipe cut and this time now the bandit is running away while laughing and pointing backwards and my assumption when i first watched this is always killed the samurai and and the film i think intentionally doesn't show you what happened so that's kind of i think that Mm. you're supposed to assume that right yeah 
the bandit runs in the now trademarked <laughs> tracking fashion through the forest. He comes up across the woman, you know, he's above her and he's watching her and she's, it's a pretty haunting image because she's sort of kneeling down and running her hand through water. And so because she's kneeling down and she has this big veil on her, she's really just this complete white thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a pretty compelling image. And she detects his presence and he rushes to her and tells her that her husband has suddenly gotten sick and she needs to go to him. And she removes her hat and veil, and we see her face for the first time. And she's, uh, you know, obviously a very beautiful person. We do have something that I think probably references traditional Japanese stage stuff and everything, which is her natural eyebrows have either been shaved off or covered over with makeup. And instead, she has the stylistic um, eyebrows much higher up on her forehead, which I think would be kind of a stage thing. I don't know if it was yeah, a real, real and they're, they're like these faint smudges almost they're like not full long eyebrows they're like little thumbprints almost over Mm -hmm. over each eye on seeing her full beauty the bandit tells the court that he suddenly envied and hated her husband and new ideas started coming to his head that he hadn't thought about before (laughs) and he tells the court that he had tied the samurai to a tree and he now decides he's going to show her how pathetic her husband looks tied to a tree so the two of them are rushing because he's told her that her, her husband is sick. And as they're rushing along to the clearing, she loses her hat and veil on a branch. <laughs> and then she indeed sees that her husband is rather pathetically tied to a tree. And she's conflicted. She obviously doesn't like seeing him this way. Uh, she pulls out a dagger and goes after the bandit. And, you know, she's really serious. And she doesn't have a chance. He's much faster than her and, and everything. But she's really fierce about it. And this just uh, makes him want her more. She does manage to bite his arm, and that just inflames his desires all the more. Mm-hmm. And then she breaks down crying, and he disarms her. And then, you know, we get to a key point here. He forcibly kisses her, and, and, and her husband is sitting nearby seeing all this. And at first she's unresponsive, but then the dagger falls from her hand and sticks straight up in the ground. And she grasps at his back and begins to reciprocate, it seems. So I think this is something her husband ultimately can't forgive. Yeah. And in back in the court, the bandit laughs maniacally at his triumph. I mean, he really goes over the top here with his laughing. He's just so proud of himself. <laughs> and he says he had succeeded in having her without killing her husband. And he still had no intent to kill the man, at least he says. And he was actually leaving the clearing. But then the wife rushed up to him. You know, she's desperate. She says that either he or her husband must die after both of them have witnessed her shame. And she says they must fight and she will go with the survivor. So the bandit gives into this and he uses his sword to cut the samurai free and gives him a sword. And the samurai doesn't waste a second. This is actually unusually good in movies, right? It's, it's not like they spend time getting into dueling position and all that. The, the second the bandit gives the samurai the sword, the samurai tries to slash him with it. <laughs> yeah. And they then have this epic sword fight that goes on for several minutes where they're doing a lot of the kind of more traditional, you know, movie sword fight stuff. And then the samurai trips over some tree branches and the bandit is able to throw his sword into him and kill him. And in court, he says the samurai fought really well. They crossed swords 23 times. The most he's ever encountered before was 20 times. And he has total respect for the samurai. So, so it was an epic fight, <laughs> the best he's ever had. But when he turned to take his prize, the woman who had promised that she would go with him, she's run away. And he finds her horse, but he can't find her. It turns out she was just like any other woman, and he's lost interest in her. (laughs) 
you kill their husband and they run away. That's, you know, women. What can we say? (laughs) (laughs) He says, in the meantime, he exchanged the samurai's sword for liquor. And he's asked about the woman's dagger that she tried to get him with. And he says it was very valuable. It has a pearl inlay. But he'd totally forgotten about it. And it's the biggest mistake he ever made because he probably would have gotten a lot of money if he'd picked up that ba- um, the dagger and sold it. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the bandit story. Back at the Rashomon Gate, the commoner tells the woodworker that Tajimaro is a famous womanizer. And there's a woman and her maid who were found dead in the mountains, probably due to him. Maybe worth mentioning, too, every time we switch back to the gate from the forest, we're going from bright sunlight to torrential rainpour. Yeah. Uh, so it's a you know always a, a switch in context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good way to kind of change things up. Yeah. And I don't, this whole thing about a woman and her maid dead in the mountains due to him, I mean, they never follow up on this. You have to make your own choice. From what we see, I don't see him as somebody who would just kill two women like that. I mean, he had to be, you know, sort of baited into killing the samurai. And he was going to leave them alive, right? So, I don't know. To to me, this felt like this is a rumor, you know, that that probably didn't actually happen, but people believe happened. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Although we never really do get a real good sense of who the bandit is, aside from the fact that he uh, has a lot of moods. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, you know, we we just. That's the, that's the whole thing with this movie is you don't know exactly what happened. So anything that we think we know about him is just, uh, we can only assign a probability to it. We do know as we see as we go along that he does like to inflate his badness, and uh, right? <laughs> so Yeah. The commoner now wonders what happened to the woman, that, you know, with the horse. And the priest says she showed up at the court. And the woodworker says right up front that her story was a lie. Well, the commoner's intrigued, so he tears up some more wood to keep the fire going so you can hear this story. And the priest here, this this guy's a real downer, you know, a real glo- <laughs> gloomy Gus. You know, he goes on about how it's because men are weak that they lie, even to themselves, and he's kind of going on. And the commoner's like, ah, I don't want to hear your, your sermons, shut up. <laughs> so he just wants to hear a good story. As he says, he just wanted a, a good, entertaining story. And I think... The commoner is, I think, supposed to kind of represent the film audience, right? <laughs> like, we don't want a sermon, we just want a good story. Now we get the wife's story, and the priest begins to tell it at the Rashomon Gate. And he's saying, first of all, he describes her saying her face did not show the fierceness that the bandit talked about. Actually, she was very docile. She, he thought she was kind of pathetic. And we now see her as the, wit- the witness in court with everyone else sitting behind her. And she's weeping with her head on the ground. And she says, after the bandit forced her to yield to him, he announced that he was the infamous Tajimaro and laughed at her tied-up husband. And the more her husband struggled, the tighter the ropes got. And she tried running to him, but the bandit stopped her. And he took her husband's sword and ran off laughing. She collapsed on the ground crying, and then she hugs her husband, but he's not responsive to her. He looks at her very coldly. She says all she saw in his eyes was loathing. And she begs him not to look at her like that. And she tells him to beat her or kill her, but not to look at her like that. And we see her realize that everything has changed and she collapses in tears. And I say, we don't totally know whether this is, is it because she was raped or is it because she seemed to kind of participate in it, right? I don't really know mm-hmm. the deal here. This is an area where the music is really interesting because it's very subtle, but all through this scene, that Bolero th- 
theme has been slowly ramping up. It starts very low and it slowly ramps up in volume and tempo as she's getting more and more upset at how her husband is treating her. Hmm. And as the theme gets much more heated, she gets up and finds that dagger she had dropped and she cuts her husband free and offers him the dagger so he can kill her. And he has this smirk on his face and she begs him not to look at her that way. And she slowly approaches him with the dagger and back in court, she says, now she fainted. And after that, when she woke up, she was shocked to find him dead with her dagger in his chest. <laughs> and she was in shock and doesn't know how she left the woods. And she went to a pond and tried to drown herself. And she's very distraught. And what is she going to do now? And for me, it was kind of like, well, shut off the film. We've got the, <laughs> we've got the criminal. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the first half of the film. So we go back to the three guys at the gate, the commoner, the woodcutter, and the priest, uh, in the pouring rain. Usually, at least in northeast Ohio, the, the heavy rain like this doesn't last more than, you know, say, 10, 15 minutes, usually. I mean, you get exceptions, but uh, this rain goes on for a good long time. <laughs> the commoner, he says that he's confused by this story. But he does note that uh, women's tears fool everyone, even themselves. <laughs> uh, so he's a little skeptical about the woman's testimony. The priest says that the dead man also spoke in court. He spoke through a medium. The woodcutter, who was there in court to hear that, uh, he says the dead man's story was also lies. <laughs> the priest, however, he says that dead men don't lie. But this isn't because of some, you know, old legend or something. It's just because he refuses to believe that men could be that sinful. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't really elaborate, but he's, uh, I guess he's saying, you know, once, you, once you're dead, you should stop sinning. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that may or may not always be the case, because we, we never find out if the dead man was really telling the full accurate truth or not. We have a lot of court cases that uh, we could resolve if, if we could just, you know, get the dead guy to to testify. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe uh, maybe mediums are something we should look into for the modern times. The commoner says that man, meaning, you know, mankind, just wants to forget the bad stuff and believe the made-up good stuff. And that's, I don't know if I wrote down the exact quote, but that's pretty much exactly what he says. <laughs> So now we see back in the court, uh, and we get a little different angle in, of the court. We don't we don't see the full court. Uh, we don't see the judge or jury or whoever else is in there. But we get sort of a higher angle shot now, where we see the medium doing standard medium stuff. He's dancing, shaking a rod, burning incense. You know, medium, witch doctor, or what have you. And the dead man, speaking through the medium, says that he's suffering in the dark. And the medium is kind of interesting. I, I thought the medium was a woman, but it is a man's voice. So I think that's, I think that may be just the way that the mediums work. You know, maybe. I, I believe that it like is, it is a man who is, who is definitely made up like a woman and looks very, as you say, very similar to the wife. He has not only the eyebrows, but he has a veil like she did. So it's. You know, mm. a lot of connection there. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely uh, 
the the medium resembles the wife far more than anyone else we see in the movie. And the medium's eyebrows, painted on eyebrows, these are different from the wife's because the wife's are more like little thumbprints. These are more like slanted, uh, you know, like rising towards the middle type yeah. eyebrows, like like you're surprised or shocked. Yeah. You know, if you were drawing a cartoon of someone being surprised, that's what the eyebrows would look like. And the dead man through the medium again says that after the bandit had his way with his wife, uh, he tried to console her. The, the bandit tried to control console her. Uh, but with an ulterior motive, he was trying to persuade her to marry him. Mm-hmm. And she says, wherever. She says she'll go wherever he takes her. So she's apparently into the bandit. Mm-hmm. And the bandit starts to lead her away, victorious. But then she says, please kill him. And the medium, speaking for the dead man, says, has such a hateful thing ever been uttered by a human before? <laughs> and the wife repeats, please kill him, over and over. And she does it enough that even the bandit starts to get disturbed. Mm-hmm. And finally, he, the bandit, hisses at her and throws her to the ground. And then he asks the husband, well, should I kill her or should I save her? Uh, he says something to the effect that, uh, you know, just nod if you want me to kill her. But he doesn't answer, so the bandit approaches him to repeat the question, and while the bandit's doing that, the wife flees. The bandit gives chase, so the husband sits alone for a while. It turns out to be probably hours, at least to him it felt like hours, he says. And then uh, the bandit finally returns. The bandit cuts him loose and says, she got away, and the bandit leaves. The husband hears someone crying, and the someone is himself. Hmm. He stands, he staggers a few feet, leans against a tree, you know, puts his head against the tree like Charlie Brown, and cries. And then he sees his wife's dagger lying in the leaves nearby. So he picks it up, and he stabs himself. And he, he doesn't even wait or think about it, he just picks it up and... He's a goner. Mm-hmm. And then the medium says he lay in silence and darkness for a while, but then someone came and gently removed the dagger. And at this point, we see the woodcutter and the priest are watching the court proceedings, and the woodcutter looks disturbed by this. And uh, we'll get some follow-up on that a little later on. Back at the gate, the rain's still pouring, and the woodcutter says, It's not true. He denies there ever was a dagger. He says the man was killed by a sword. And when he says this, the priest and the commoner <laughs> give one another a kind of a significant look, like maybe they're not entirely convinced that he's <laughs> telling the truth. The woodcutter goes to sit a little ways away from them, and the commoner joins him. The commoner wants to hear his story, and the priest protests. He doesn't want to hear any more horror stories. But the woodcutter's going to proceed. He says he saw the tied-up man and the woman and the bandit. Uh, And this is not what he told us. Remember, he was the first person to tell a story about just finding the hat and the cap and eventually the corpse. For our discussion with Peter last week, he said that in the short story, 
the stories we've already told were the only stories, right? And the, this one mm. was added by Kurosawa. Okay. Well, it works well. That's a little more complexity and whatnot. The the woodcutter didn't tell all this before because he didn't want to get involved in all the court business and all the, you know, entanglements that come along with that. But now he's going to tell the full story. So the bandit was on his knees with the woman, and he's begging her to be his wife, which uh, for such a proud, mighty bandit is uh, certainly a, a big condescension for him. He's begging her to be his wife, and she's just crying. He goes on to say he's got money saved up. He can quit being a bandit and then never be a bandit again, just live on his savings. And if that's not enough for her, he'll, he'll, even, uh, he'll even do honest work so she doesn't have to take blood money. <laughs> but the catch is, if she refuses him, well, then he'll have to kill her. <laughs> and her reply is, how could I, a woman, say anything? She doesn't think she is going to have much say in this whole situation, ultimately. She releases her husband from his ropes. The bandit doesn't doesn't move to stop her. And the husband says, I refuse to risk my life for such a woman. <laughs> he tells her she should kill herself. And he says, I don't want this shameless whore. And at that, the bandit starts to walk off. He's just done with it all. The woman tries to follow him, but he yells at her. Then the husband yells at her, and the bandit says not to bully her. <laughs> so there are a lot of conflicting emotions going on here, I guess. So she cries and cries, and then the crying turns to laughter, and she says they're both weak. She says the husband should kill the bandit before he tells her to kill herself. <laughs> And she tells the bandit she was relieved when she found out who he was. She was hoping that he'd free her from her current life. Apparently, she's not too enchanted with it. But it turned out the bandit was a dud, too. She's disappointed in both of them. She says a woman loves a man who loves passionately. A man has to make a woman his by his sword. <laughs> so at this, the men are... Apparently shamed into reluctantly fighting. Neither one of them seems to want to, but uh, they apparently have decided that it's just something you've got to do. <laughs> they're both cautious, though. Their, their swords are shaking. They're both keeping their distance. I mean, this is not having come into this with the idea of Kurosawa's films being all about, uh, you know, the... the samurai of prowess and all that that is not what this is these are these are a couple of hapless bumblers yeah they keep missing each other and stuff and it's it's this huge contrast of course to how the bandit described their fight right <laughs> oh yeah the first time they cross swords the very noise of the sword seems to send them both dashing away <laughs> from each other they're the leaves that are all over the forest floor they fall down in them they stumble about they flail around they're spinning trying to see if the other guy is close to them they're it's just pathetic <laughs> finally they approach near each other again for another crossing of the swords but when they do it she screams and that scream scares the husband into running and it scares the bandit into chasing after the husband and they're both just 
they're comically inept. And it, this reminds me a lot of the they live fight scene as far <laughs> as the duration of it. It just mm -hmm. goes on and on. But this is a slapstick version of it. But also, unlike that fight scene, uh, this one ends up being deadly. Mm -hmm. Because the bandit finally, very slowly, he works up his courage to stab the husband. And there's a good minute or so of him slowly stalking the husband down with his sword over his head and ready to strike. And finally, he stabs the husband just once. He figures that's enough to do the job. And the bandit finally goes to claim his prize. Now apparently he's regained his enthusiasm for the woman. Now that he's, now that he's demonstrated his ownership, so to speak, with the sword. But when he goes, when he goes to her, she resists him and she she runs away. He chases her. His sword's drawn. He's he's going to teach her a lesson, but he's exhausted from the fight he's just been through, and he collapses to the ground. And she gets away. So then we go back to the gate, where it's still, the rain is still coming down in buckets. So the commoner laughs at the woodcutter's story, and the, the woodcutter insists that he isn't lying. The priest is trying to reassure himself, it sounds like. He says he still believes in the decency of men, but he doesn't sound very <laughs> confident in that at all. The commoner laughs and says, uh, in the end, you can't understand what men do. And then there's the sound of a baby crying. Turns out the ba baby is in a basket in a dry corner of the gate. Maybe it's been here all along. They're not very uh, attentive, if so. You'd think they would have noticed before now. <laughs> yeah. But it is, uh, you know, they'd have to visit a different part of the gate. So, mm -hmm. who knows. The baby is in a basket, and it's wrapped in blankets, but it's also wrapped in a kimono. Uh, that was presumably left to keep the baby warm. The commoner takes the kimono. He just unwraps it from the baby and picks it up, and it's his now. And the woodcutter objects. Yeah, we can't steal a kimono from a baby. But the commoner says the parents were evil. They left the baby here. The woodcutter points out they left a good luck amulet for the baby, or some kind of amulet, protective amulet. I don't know what, exactly what it is, but it's... Apparently to the woodcutter, it's a sign that the parents cared about the baby. Not as much as if they had maybe kept the baby and fed it, but uh, it's still a, a mark that the parents cared anyway. The commoner dismisses it and says, if you aren't selfish, you can't survive. Well, the woodcutter starts to get angry. He says everybody's dishonest. You know, the, the wife, the husband, the bandit. They're all making excuses, and so is the commoner. Uh, he's, he's angry with the commoner, and he grapples with him. But the commoner just laughs at him, and uh, he suggests that the woodcutter stole the dagger. He uh, even brings forth a few points of evidence to uh, buttress his arguments. And the, uh, the woodcutter doesn't deny it. He stands there looking ashamed. So the commoner laughs and slaps him, and then the commoner leaves. He carries the kimono into the rain with him, and he's still laughing uproariously. So back in the gate, back in the little dry area, the priest is holding the baby, and he stands there for a little bit with the woodcutter standing next to him, just standing there silently. The rain begins to let up. You know, it, it dulls down to a, just a drizzle. And the baby starts crying again. 
The woodcutter tries to take the baby from the priest, and the pr priest resists that and uh, chastises him, uh, thinking that he's he's trying to uh, get away with something, maybe sell the kid into slavery or whatever. <laughs> but the woodcutter says he has six kids. One more won't make a difference. So the woodcutter, at least apparently, is trying to do a nice, good mm -hmm. deed. And the priest, that's the way the priest uh, takes it. He says, thanks to you, I think I can keep my faith in man. <laughs> and while we don't know for sure that the woodcutter is telling the truth, we do see him leave the gate with the baby. He's walking towards the camera. The sun's coming out after the rain, and uh, the woodcutter seems to look happy. And not, uh, you know, happy that he's got a baby to sell, but uh, <laughs> just happy that he's doing something good. And that's the end of the show. So, uh, well, let's see. Is, you know, I have seen it before, although it was a long time ago. This, you know, being your your first exposure and your first Kurosawa, what's kind of your your initial reaction? I liked it a lot, actually. Um, as I said, I after the first viewing, I was a little puzzled by some of some of it. It's not. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's not a movie. It, it's not in line with with the movies that I typically watch. I guess you know I'm maybe more accustomed to being spoon fed or <laughs> something. I don't know. You get all the and, and that's I mean the whole idea of the plot of this movie is that it isn't going to feed you the answer. In fact, it isn't ever going to imply that there really is an answer. <laughs> you know who. Who knows? It's just mm -hmm. uh, there's there's possibilities, and certainly, out of the four stories that we get, there's some overlap between them. So we may think that we know at least a few key points, but yeah, maybe we do, maybe we don't. But overall, I uh, I like it a lot. I like the rain especially. I think mm -hmm. they did a beautiful job with that. It's uh, and I'd, I'm just the sort of person who likes. Yeah, like if it's really heavy rain or something, I'll enjoy just sitting out on the porch and seeing it. You know? So mm -hmm. uh, that was that was really neat. Overall, it's just I don't know. It's really a weird, different experience, but it's definitely one I'm glad I had. I would definitely categorize it as worth worth watching. Mm -hmm. It's it's pretty cool, and the actors really each of them has their own little. Uh, quirks you know the priest is sort of this uh mild-mannered meek seeming kind of guy you know and the woodcutter just has this kind of rusticness about him you know i mean everybody is cast real well the bandit is crazy <laughs> <laughs> and then the the wife is uh enigmatic and you know which is the role she's meant to play here being enigmatic is sort of the core of the whole deal yeah it's it's a neat movie it's uh very different from my usual fare but i <laughs> uh, i did like it i thought it was uh, beautifully done and without a whole lot of production razzmatazz you mm -hmm. know like you said there's there's basically three sets none of them is terribly expensive so aside from However, they rigged up the rain. That, yeah. you know, we'll still have to figure, figure out what that was all about. <laughs> I'm curious now. Yeah, um, I think that, and I think this is the benefit of 
Kurosawa having done a bunch of films before this, right? So he's coming into this with a lot of experience and able to be probably a much more confident director than someone could be if they were like starting with a film like this, right? Mm -hmm. And he also mentioned that they all lived like in a house while they were filming it. And so they were together all the time. And he really liked that because it really meant that they could spend time together and talk about the film and really have a mutual understanding of what they were doing. And he thought that was good. Yeah. And I, I think that certainly on the, my first rewatching here, I more appreciated it than was like emotionally impacted by it. Right. I appreciate the technical stuff mm -hmm. and I appreciate the impact it had and how important it was. As I mentioned, really watching a second time and having more context and everything, it definitely, I could get more into it on an emotional level. And so I think, I would almost kind of say it's worth watching twice, right? So that uh, you get more out of it. Because especially, mm -hmm. and I, I still, you know, I still need the help of reading things and everything to get all the stuff that's going on in the end. Because in the end, when they find the baby and there's the whole implication of him stealing the dagger, a lot of that just went over my head mm -hmm. when I was originally watching it, right? It's, it's So there's a lot of intricacy in there <laughs> that uh, uh, you can miss the first time. Yeah, the first, uh, you know, I, I didn't watch the whole thing twice. I watched it once, and then I watched the second half again to take the notes on it for the podcast here. But there were things like in the first watching, that bit about the dagger, when uh, when the commoner is telling the woodcutter he knows what he's been up to. You know, I didn't really understand. I mean, I understood what he was saying, but I hadn't seen any of that coming. I hadn't regarded any of, of it as important up to that point and then uh you know on the second go through i started to see more details like when they're in the court proceedings and the woodcutter reacts when the medium reveals that the dagger was involved and so mm -hmm. on the little things they thread through like there's one point you know where the bandit mentions what a valuable dagger it was and then is upset that he didn't think to steal it you know, so there's, mm -hmm. there's these little hints laid throughout the story, right? Oh, yeah. So it definitely is one of those movies that rewards uh, repeated viewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this bodes well, considering that we've more or less committed to uh, watching <laughs> a handful of other Kurosawa movies. Uh, this This gives me cause for optimism. Oh, and I want to mention one more thing, mm -hmm. just so I don't seem to be giving an, an unconditionally glowing recommendation <laughs> of the movie. Uh, one thing that did occur to me, uh, or perhaps I should say occurred to my experience of having watched two and a half seasons of Doctor Who at this point, <laughs> it occurred to me that, uh, you know, this probably, this 90-minute movie probably could have been a 70-minute movie. <laughs> but... That uh, that was just my own cynicism uh, <laughs> there because uh, I mean the the drawn out scenes do do add something uh, and I don't think I should really cut it down to seventy minutes without losing something but uh, but it does have some uh, some drawn out scenes so <laughs> be aware of that well good uh, so uh, so we officially recommend it. And so, yeah. you know, next, we're, as we talked about, we're going to talk about films that were influenced by this. And so it's a, it's a different approach for us and really different. I haven't, you know, seen any other podcasts that did something like this. So I think what we'll be doing is 
we've seen some, well, actually haven't seen some of these. We have seen some of them. So we're kind of going by, you know, other people saying that they're influenced by this. And I think part of what we'll be doing is evaluating, you know, does this film really fit into this category and how does it compare to this one and that sort of thing. So our, and we're going to go in chronological order of the ones we're covering. So our next one is going to be 1995's Usual Suspects. Hmm. So, related to this, have you followed this uh, Alec Murdoch case at all? Mm, doesn't ring a bell, no. Well, it's kind of the big true crime story right now, because he, um, the Murdoch family, and, and I'm saying this because this is very related to this film today. I mean, it's, it's basically like a retelling of the film. Um, hmm. The Murdoch family in, um, uh, it's, uh, I forget where they are, it's, it's in the South, but um it was this hugely prominent family who, for like the last hundred years, had basically run the justice system in this town mm. and was completely, you know, connected and respected and could never be touched and all this because they had too many connections. So you got one of these cases where a few generations down, you know, like, the, well, a few months or a couple of years ago, one of their kids, a teenager, um, his name is Paul, and he had a boat and he took his friends on the boat and they went out to some bars, you know, they, they would go, you know, cause there's, it's, uh, how to look up where it is. But anyway, it's a river area kind of thing. So you could, you know, hook up your boat to the dock and walk to a bar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he illegally, he was underage, but he used his brother's ID to buy alcohol <clears throat> and they got mm -hmm. totally smashed and he refused to give up driving the boat. The other people wanted him to give up cause he was doing like, you know, donuts and acting irresponsibly, but he wouldn't hmm. stop driving the boat. And then he drove the boat into a, a bridge pylon. Hmm. And uh, one of the women, you know, really a teen, probably about 20 year old on board, went over the edge and, and died. Hmm. Um, and. You know, people figured he probably wouldn't be prosecuted because he was a Murdoch and they were all connected and everything. But, you know, eventually after a couple of years, a lawsuit or, you know, prosecution started occurring. Meanwhile, his father, this guy, Alec Murdoch, and mm -hmm. he was a big time uh, lawyer in the town. And in the past, at various points, uh, their housekeeper, who had been their housekeeper for a long time, fell down the stairs and died. Hmm. And he, and they said that she tripped over their dogs. <laughs> hmm. um, he then, at her funeral, told her sons that they should sue him for um, damages for her mother dying on his property and, you know, in his employee. Hmm. So they did, and he hooked them up with a lawyer. Well, he then... They won, but what he did was he took the money <laughs> that they won from his hmm. insurance and, and and stole it from them. 
Hmm. And then somewhere in there, um, this young guy dies allegedly in a hit and run. And there's a general feeling that he was in a relationship with one of the, um, one of the sons of this guy. And then all of a sudden he dies under mysterious circumstances. Hmm. Well, then his wife, so they're waiting for his son to go on trial. And then his wife starts initiating divorce proceedings against him. Um, she's kind of figured out some things are, are wrong. Um, and so between the son's trial where this is causing, he's going to have to, uh, be deposed and people are going to start finding out that for the last 10 plus years, he's had no money and he's been stealing from everybody, his law partners, his clients, you know, things like that. The woman dying mm. and him getting <clears throat> money. So he's, you know, millions of dollars in the hole. He's been stealing millions of dollars. He's still screwed. And he's been addicted to opioids this whole time. Hmm. So <laughs> he gets his wife to, to come. They're separated. She's, you know, staying elsewhere. He gets her to come over for the evening. And he says that after dinner, her and his son went to their kennels. Um, they had this big estate and they had these kennels and he took a nap on the couch and then he went to, to see his mother who was in late stage. Um, uh, like she's totally out of it, right? She's dying and, mm -hmm. and, um, and not really cognizant of anything. And then he came back and found them shot to death in the kennels <laughs> And he calls 911 and, and all this. And he's from the 911 call on, he's like, I wasn't here. You know, I was at my mother's and I didn't see them, et cetera. So we go a year later, we're at the trial. And during the trial, they managed to get into um, his son's phone and they find a snapshot he took. A couple of them. One was of his father. Um, at the kennels with them wearing a different set of clothes than they had found him with. And hmm. then there's a um, recording of him. What, he was concerned about one of the dogs. And he was playing around with it, and he was sending a video to his friend because the dog seemed to be sick. And in the background of that recording, you hear his father. Hmm. Now, his father said he never went to the kennel, and he wasn't hmm. there, and he hadn't seen them since dinner. So during, and that was his story for a year from the time the 911 call to hmm. the trial. So during the trial, they come up with this evidence. And so now he has to testify. You know, normally you don't testify in something like that because you're just opening yourself up to problems. But now that they've got the video recording of him at the kennel a couple minutes before the, his wife and son were shot, he's got to go on the stand and explain it. Hmm. And so he goes on the stand and he admits to, you know, there's like 99 cases of him stealing from people <laughs> and that he lied this whole time. But now he's telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and they, um, somewhat controversially, the jury convicted him in three hours. This is hmm. after like a six-week trial. So people expected them to take days, et cetera. And they're like, nope, <laughs> you know, he did it. <laughs> And some people actually criticize them and don't believe that was legitimate. But it's like, no, come on, you know, 
<laughs> the guy was there a couple minutes before they were shot, lied about it to 911, you know, and then there's all sorts of other circumstantial evidence. Anyway, it just really amused me because as I'm watching this and thinking about Rashomon, it's like, yep, you know, what's the truth and who's telling the right story? <laughs> <laughs> and literally, there was testimony from the dead because they got the son's video that he took before mm, he died. Yeah. <laughs> 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 hmm. Okay. Interesting. I might uh, might have to read more about that. Well, there's. <laughs> I haven't watched. I've watched all sorts of stuff, uh, but I haven't watched this. But people say it's really good. So if you want to check into it, there's a Netflix documentary called the the um, uh, Murdoch Murders um, oh. that goes into through all this. 